Weddings, college graduations, your stepmom placing third in a dog grooming competition. We've all got reasons to gift this summer, so give them something they'll love, drinks. And get them all from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop local stores and compare prices on beer, wine, spirits, then get them delivered in time for your summer celebrations. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Today on the Enemies List, my guest is Michael Waldman of the Brennan Center. He has a tremendous new book out called The Supermajority. It is about the changes in the Supreme Court that have happened since Republicans took over a a meaningful majority of the court seats for the first time in history and the monumental changes that have happened because of it that have been reflected particularly in the 2021-22 court season. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Michael, I want to just start out. Tell us a little bit about the book more broadly. Um, and then I want to get and uh, drill down into some of the specific things that happened in the in that in the 2021 window that have been so meaningful both for society and for the court. Thanks. You know, uh, the book tries to look at the Supreme Court, at its role, at its power, how it got this way, and how this new supermajority of six very conservative justices moving mm-hmm. in lockstep, by and large, are using that power, um, and. Uh, it looks at some of the history leading up to it, and it very much focuses on the first full year when they had this supermajority uh, with major cases like Dobbs uh, and others uh, in in June of last year, and talks about a pattern throughout our country's history. You know, the Supreme Court is is an unusual institution. We take for granted that we wait every June for nine unelected uh, government officials with lifetime appointments to issue their rulings and sort of tell us what kind of country we live in. Other democracies don't have a court of that power and that nature. And we give the Supreme Court this power because as a country, we believe that it's above politics. We think there's a huge value in having its independent role and independent voice. But when it is captured, when it is captured by a faction of a faction, which I would argue has happened now, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's a problem. And there's a long history, a few other times in the country's history where uh, the court has overreached significantly and where there's been a fierce political public response. And I think we're in a moment like that. So before we get into the cases that we're facing now that have, that have caused such a big response, tell us some, about some of the, the, the sort of precedent for the public and the country pushing back on the court playing a role that went well beyond its purview and started to feel, you know, uh, deleterious to the rest of the nation. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to me in in learning about these things as I researched the book because of course the the court is in the constitution, but 
it only has one-tenth the length devoted to the judicial system and the Supreme Court as devoted to the Congress and the presidency, the democratically mm-hmm. accountable branches, which the founders really thought would be the main show. And most of the time, the court hugs the middle. It reflects the political consensus of whatever the moment is or the elite political consensus. But three times by my count in the country's history, the Supreme Court was extreme or unduly partisan or unduly activist. And the first time was the Dred Scott decision in 1857, Mm -hmm. which saw the court trying to, quote, solve the problem of slavery, by which it meant the problem of people agitating over slavery. It said that the Congress could not bar slavery from the territories, basically that it was national and not just that, but that black people couldn't be citizens and had no rights. And the response was so intense, it propelled Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. Mm -hmm. It led to the rise of the Republican Party, ultimately, of course. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it blew up American politics of note to Politico aficionados, uh, that actually was the first major opinion that leaked. It actually leaked to the <laughs> incoming president-elect, Buchanan, who wanted them to go big in this way. And he got up in his inaugural address and said, well, the Supreme Court's going to issue this big ruling. None of us know what it's going to say. Let's all just agree that whatever it says, we'll go along with it, right? <laughs> and <laughs> even the next day, all the newspapers said, well, we know what that means. Um, so, right. you know, there's always been a lot of politics in politics, but there was a, a, a real pushback and people felt it entirely appropriate to take on the Supreme Court and its role. Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, with Roger Taney, the chief justice who wrote mm-hmm. that opinion mm-hmm. sitting there and about to swear him in, Lincoln said, there are some people who say the Supreme Court should decide what's constitutional. We know better than that. Um, it, it, when, you can't allow these nine unelected, they weren't nine, you can't allow these unelected judges to upend our democracy. That was a pretty big moment. The next time it happened was the beginning of the 20th century when the country was industrializing. It had mm-hmm. lots of immigration. There was big economic inequality with the Gilded Age. And the Supreme Court at that time saw its role as being to stop government from doing anything about it, to stop the growth of new ways to protect uh, workers' rights or public safety or women. And that is known to the lawyers as the Lochner era after a particularly notorious case. But it was a huge political issue and, again, a big political pushback and fight back. And uh, I had not realized that Teddy Roosevelt, his 1912 presidential campaign, which was this epic moment where he was yep, running yep. against his handpicked successor uh, and Woodrow Wilson was the other candidate and Eugene Debs was the fourth. Imagine the podcasts you know, that they could have had. Right? <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt's big issue was taking on the Supreme Court, actually taking on these rulings. Now, he had some kind of wild ideas. He thought there should be a ballot initiative that you could overturn the Supreme Court when they made a constitutional ruling. But this was the stuff of politics and a fierce pushback that lasted all the way to his cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, and his fight with the Supreme Court that eventually led to the court packing proposal and fight and then the court backing down. The third time, and this is interesting for me as a liberal, and I run the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, named after the great liberal justice, William Brennan. The third time, I think, where we saw a backlash for sure to the court was the Warren Court and its aftermath, where this was the court, this is the only time the Supreme Court sort of was ahead of the country in being more expansive on rights. Mm 
But it really was part of the social turmoil of the time. It began with Brown mm-hmm. versus Board of Education, which was an absolutely necessary step to to crack sure. the sure. the the you know the the segregation hold on on the South in particular. Um, but over time, there was so much change packed into that court, and so much of it done by these lawsuits and big rulings that that created its own legitimacy crisis and its own backlash. And in a lot of ways, we are living in that backlash uh, to this day. I, and, that, you I, know, I, Roe v. Mm-hmm. Wade, of course, being the most famous case from that period that drew that response. I was just going to say, I think, I think you can make a real argument that the modern conservative movement uh, and the politics of today still are profoundly shaped by the Brennan court and, and by this reaction to the Brennan court being much more progressive at the, than the country was at, at the time as a whole. And it became a, this very strong cultural touchstone among conservatives that that still shapes the perception that the court is somehow this liberal bastion among the minds of, of Republicans, which I just find mind-blowing that, that they've basically done a 50-year long march to the institution. And, you know, a lot of that is driven by the Federalist Society and the judges that have been shaped by that that whole culture, right? I mean, they they basically have built a generation or two generations now of FedSoc judges who have a predictable set of legal behaviors. The key word there, I think, is predictable mm-hmm. in that, you know, judges always were political and that's how they got to be judges. Sure. Um, but once they were on the court, it was not always so easy to predict precisely what they were going to do. And when uh, President Eisenhower... Um, a Republican, of course, um, mm-hmm. uh, chose uh, Earl Warren, the Chief Justice, and chose mm-hmm. Brennan. And was he said he thought he made a big mistake. But there were plenty of examples, both among Democrats and Republicans, of you know judges evolving, changing, drifting once they were on the court. You don't see that anymore. And the the Federalist Society and its role is really pretty unusual, I think, in the country's history. It's basically mm-hmm. a faction of a faction has taken control of this branch with unelected lifetime members, um, and it, it picks the it picks the judges. They gave Trump the list of people who he might put on the mm-hmm. court. They advance the arguments, and then what what turns out to be the case is it's actually it started as a student club, um, right. but really is now a very well oiled and well funded machine. And I had not realized the extent to which this sort of dark money operation had taken hold, you know, I I look at the Federalist Society and say, you know, they're pretty effective, obviously. They don't really have, seem to have that much money. Well, it turns out that Leonard Leo, the leader of the Federalist Society- <laughs> He's got a lot of money now. <laughs> a few years ago, somebody gave him $1.6 billion. Billion dollars. It's to run ads, to mm-hmm. do all kinds of things, including creating and funding- groups that then file the briefs on big cases in front of the judges that they other arm of their operation put on the court. And this is not just in the Supreme Court, but all the way down in the federal system. So all of this leads to the sense among a lot of people that it's been politicized, that it's, uh, you know, not acting like a judicial system, not acting like a court. And it's one of the reasons I think that the you know, public trust in the court and the Supreme Court has collapsed right. in the it past really year has. to the lowest level ever recorded. And that is a crisis if we care about having independent courts, which I think we all do. And and again, I do think the rulings that the key rulings in the last term 
came out of that long march that many, they, many of them took decades to achieve of focused oh, yes. political and legal organizing. As a former Republican, I can tell you, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is who was on a state court, not in Florida, and she was bragging to me that you know that she her daughter is in law school now and will be a second generation FedSoc judge someday soon. Wow! And I was just <laughs> like, that is that you? I mean, hate the player, but but they play the game. I mean, they really well, but, and do. they and they understand. So one of the the three cases, and as I say in the book, they were. First, the Dobbs, the, the sure. Bruin case, rather, which was the mm-hmm. first one, which right, is the, by far the most sweeping Second Amendment case in American history. Oh, by far. And then the next day was Dobbs, which, of course, overturned Roe v. Wade and Casey and a half a century of protection of women's right. abortion rights in the Constitution. And the third and final day was West Virginia versus EPA, which was the real beginning of the assault on the administrative state, the curbing of the power the of the Chevron agencies. deference. Uh, yeah. And it's a multi pronged attack on deference. <laughs> right. Trying to go back to the way things were before Roosevelt had his fight with the Supreme Court in 1937, mm-hmm. when the court said, our job is to implement basically free market economics, small government policies through the Constitution. Um, right. And, you know, they crammed decades of social change into those three days. And th- take the example of the, the Second Amendment case. I wrote an earlier book about the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. You know, the Supreme Court did not say that the Second Amendment reflects an individual right to gun ownership until 2008 mm-hmm. in the Heller case. The Heller. That, was, that yeah. was the first time. And previously it had, it had said otherwise. And that came because of a very effective, classic campaign by the NRA and other gun rights groups to change how the country and the court saw the meaning of that of that sure. provision. Sure. And what what's interesting is, you know, that was written by Scalia. Um, it, he called it the vindication of originalism. It was the first modern originalist right. opinion. But it's still, it said it's an individual right, but it said you still could have strong gun laws. Mm-hmm. And Scalia was asked... Um, what's the difference between you and Justice Thomas? And he said, I am an originalist, but I am not a nut. <laughs> and Thomas wrote this opinion. Um, yes. And this one literally says that you cannot consider, in effect, public safety when assessing the constitutionality of a gun law. Only, quote, history and tradition. Yeah, meaning common use. So yeah, well, no, Heller was common use. That if it's something that's oh, right, that's common use and un, 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 if something's unusually dangerous and not in common use, you can restrict it. That's that's uh, Thomas would say. Eh, that's the wrong way to think about it. The question is, did they have a law just like this in 1791? Right, and if they didn't, right. you can't have it now. And that's a so crazy those, way to run a railroad. It's it's it's. It's fascinating to me because those are you're right. Those are three incredibly consequential cases, but I think the one that that has focused America and had the biggest political impact is the Dobbs case. Sure. So I have to ask you two questions about that. Tell me what you what what you make first off of the Dobbs leak, which is a huge story I think for a lot of people. And tell me about what what do you know about from from your reporting on this, the decision making process on this. They had to know this was going to be a a, an, an atomic weapon going off in the culture when they did this. They had to understand that. Was it was it treated lightly? Did they did they did Barrett and Kavanaugh and 
and the other conservatives really understand what was going to happen after they did this. And and they're an inter they're interrelated. But I I'll answer it in reverse order. I I think they knew that they were going to do this. I don't think they quite knew what the impact politically, culturally, the explosion that would respond. Earlier in the year, if you remember, uh, Texas had banned abortion using right. a law that was outlandish in the way they set it up. It said, you can, basically, the government can't do this because that would violate Roe v. Wade, but vigilantes or bounty hunters can bring cases right. against people who provide abortions. <laughs> the and snitch the system. Court, yeah, and in what's called the shadow docket, in a one-paragraph order, the Supreme Court in September of 2021 said, oh, you can do that. <laughs> and there were no big marches. There was no public explosion. It turns out it was because they hadn't said the magic words, we hereby overrule Roe v. Wade, I think. But mm-hmm. um, the the leak was part of the drama of it all. And that, as you know, about in May of, of last year, Politico had the opinion and it was quite explosive. And it was really dramatic just to see it in plain type. As I described in the book, there was a memorial service underway for Justice Stevens, who had been a member of the court. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the Supreme Court justices came in to sit in their seats. And they all looked like really freaked out. <laughs> and someone said Alito looked like he was going to punch somebody. And all the attendees and at the cocktail party afterwards were saying, what happened? What's going on? And then and then uh, they found out pretty quickly. So it, it, I think the court was quite perturbed about the leak. Of course, like everybody else, I was interested in knowing who did it. Right. Um, and, you know, it's the ultimate true crime podcast. And I will say my first assumption was, oh, it must have been one of the liberals. You know, not right. the liberal justices, but a liberal staff member or, sure, clerk staff or something clerk, who's yeah. upset and wants the world to know. And that's the straightest line, you know, Occam's razor between two points. But the more I looked at it, and maybe these are just my own biases coming through, there's actually a pattern and practice of leaks on the right. There have been other sure. leaks before. I mentioned um, I mentioned the uh, uh Dred Scott case, actually, Roe v. Wade leaked itself in, in 1973. I did not know that. But <laughs> by accident. <laughs> <they> post- <laughs> someone leaked it, and then they postponed the release of it for a week. So it was in Time magazine before they ever actually published it. Wow. But in recent years, it's been on the right. Uh, the Affordable Care Act case, when Roberts originally voted to strike the law down and then had second mm-hmm. thoughts, the word went out, a bat signal went out, as one person said, Roberts is going wobbly. And there was a big, uh, there was quite quite a lot of oh, chatter. I remember. At the time. Yeah, yeah, you know, I remember the, that. But then this happened again other times in a case a couple of years ago called Bostock, um, a gay rights case, where about a month before, suddenly you started seeing articles saying, "Don't go soft, uh, Gorsuch. Don't let Elena Kagan, you know, pull you off with her clever reasoning." <laughs> and it's exactly <laughs> what happened. And and again, even at the time, people said, "Oh, it looks like another leak." And the Wall Street Journal editorial page had this story a week before Politico. They just didn't have or print the actual text itself. And Got then it. the key thing for me was a week after the leak, Politico had another story which said, well, the five votes are holding. Well, that didn't come from Sonia Sotomayor. How would she know? You no. know, so so we'll, we won't know. We don't know. And the court didn't seem to do a very energetic job of trying to find out. Um, in I noticed that seemed like a fairly pro forma investigation of uh, of the leak. It wasn't really didn't seem like it was a terribly enthusiastic 
pursuit. <laughs> Among other things, they didn't ask the justices if they had right. done it um, or had given it to anybody. So I think that they did not. I think they had to, they girded themselves for public response. They said, well, we don't care about the public. In earlier eras, people worried about public credibility or the reaction. We don't do that. That would be crass and shallow. But, you know, they, they, they did. But I don't think they could have actually projected necessarily the response. There's been, as I say, these other periods in American history, a very fierce political response. Mm-hmm. I think that there is one now, at least beginning and maybe well, well underway. The midterm election, you know, the party that president controls always does badly. This was the best midterm for a party in power in decades, partly because Mm -hmm. of people's worries about democracy, but very heavily about about Dobbs. And it was a lot of the uh, independents and soft Republicans who care, who who, who saw these things as conflated. Um, And then the Wisconsin uh, judicial election a few months ago, Mm -hmm. where you know, Wisconsin's a very evenly divided state. Sure. In in voting, not in the legislature, but in voting, and including the election of these state Supreme Court justices, which they do there by election, as most of the country does. And it went from an evenly divided state to an 11 point win for the more liberal candidate. That's right. In, in a referendum on the direction of the courts. So, look, you know, if that kind of thing holds, that's an earthquake, that's a realignment. So, I think there's a big response. As a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response, and that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Joe Trippi, In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies to let the world know where you stand. Everybody's got a morning ritual. I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found. With the new grip, I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the Craft Handle Starter Set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value, so this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the Craft Handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. We saw in our in our polling, our survey work in 2022, you know, we made a case before Dobbs came out. We said this election is going to be about democracy. You know, we, it, a lot of our friends were saying, oh, it's going to be about prescription drugs, inflation, gas prices. We're like, no, no, no. Democracy, they stormed the Capitol. And then when Dobbs hit, it spiked so quickly 
in the in the survey work and it split off a lot of softer republican voters away from the republican party cuz you know the dirty little secret of the republicans is between 22 and 25% of republican women are either somewhat or very pro choice interesting and about 15 to 18% of republican men and they didn't think it was ever going to really happen because people have been talking about this for decades and it was right. always one vote away from happening which i always thought mm-hmm. was quite a coincidence but exactly. uh, and young people as well Oh, yeah. I think it helps supercharge the turnout. And what's interesting, too, is when, you know, I think of uh, uh, people like Sarah Longwell and the focus groups that she's done showing mm-hmm. that people conflated these issues, the democracy issue, the election denial, and the the Dobbs issue as evidence of extremism. Yes. Um, and usually the old saw, at least, you know, I was in the Clinton White House, I was in Democratic politics, mm-hmm. was that the Democrats had issues. You know, Democrats would say, oh, if we could just get people to focus on prescription drug on prices and, and policy and, <laughs> and Republicans had themes. This time, the Democrats had the themes and, and the Republicans yep. had inflation or the border or crime, whatever, which was an re- interesting reversal. So I think, I, you know, I think that the the backlash is going to continue that the 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 controversies around Clarence Thomas and and all those other kinds of things uh, keep that going. Um, and, you know, what's one thing that's interesting, and I was struck by what you said, that the Republicans were still running in their minds against the Warren court half a century later. Democrats, progressives were basking in the glow of the Warren court. Half a century yes. later, that's a really long good after there was any like, reason really from their point. perspective to have done so. Right. Uh, you know, you mentioned though just now uh, Clarence Thomas and and his his behavior and all this stuff, and and I think it brings up two interesting questions. First off, it really does reflect, I think, not just on Thomas but on Roberts on how he manages this court and how he handles the Thomas situation. Um, and so far, it has seemed unbelievably stubborn and deferential to Thomas, even though if he were in any other federal position and had a sponsor like Harlan Crow and was engaged in things that have overlaps with Harlan Crow's interest on the court without recusing himself, um, or if the wife of somebody was you know, involved in the insurrection, you would think the Supreme Court Chief Justice would say, hey, we got to work on this. We need to focus on this, Clarence. Uh, what's up? But it doesn't seem like he has either the power or the or the will to try to discipline Thomas on this in any way. It's very interesting. And, you know, it, it's said of Roberts, and I think it's true that he's an institutionalist, that he does yeah. – he wants to steer the court to the right, but cautiously. He does mm-hmm. keep an eye on public approval of the court as an institution, recognizing that's where it gets its power from. Um, sure. And I think we saw that, it, among other things, in the Voting Rights Act ruling – this yeah. week, where I the was Alabama ruling, right? Yeah, where he surprised us all by voting with the liberals as well as Kavanaugh and bringing to, Kavanaugh along with him. Bring Kavanaugh along with him. Kavanaugh only said, "Well, it's precedent." <laughs> he didn't even say, "Like I really love this," but it was <laughs> it was real. This was the most surprising ruling in many many a moon on the court. As, as I told a friend in Alabama, take the win. <laughs> yeah. Well, because Roberts personally had for decades had a, a thing about the provision of the law that they were that they were looking at, this section two of the Voting Rights Act. He yeah. actually mm-hmm. has a young attorney in the Justice Department crusaded against the congressional bill that he then upheld in this 
in this right. uh, ruling. And so, you know, that to me is evidence that at least on this, and I give him props, you know, he, he at the very least did have that in mind of the credibility of the court, I assume. But that is undercut dramatically by the lack of action on Thomas. You know, there's a very deep, basic insight, which is nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. And so the Supreme Court should have a binding ethics code, just like all every other court in the country. Absolutely. That seem, and Congress can do it. Um, but so can the court. And Roberts just needs, I would say, just needs to, to be a bit more aggressive in pushing the court forward because yeah, he doesn't it, have a ton of power other than the fact that he's chief right. justice. He's just one among nine votes, but he really has the, the megaphone in a way. And, yeah. and, and every day that he doesn't, the court's credibility leaks out. No, I think that's really, I think that's really on point because one among nine, but he is, he is chief. And I think, I think if you wanted to sort of like make a meaningful, significant step toward restoring public confidence, you would say, you know, here's how the financial reporting is going to work in the court from now on. Here's and how. And if you recuse yourself, say why. You guys say why. Yeah, right. You and know, yeah, which is you, a basic. If you're not going to do a case, make the point. You know, if your wife is in the insurrection, a, you, you know, you just got to tell yeah. us why you're nevertheless still ruling on the case as, as which, Thomas did. Yeah. And I look, I think the Thomas stuff, to me, this is not ethics. Ethics is not to minimize it, but it's, you know, can I take this cup of coffee from a lobbyist or something? Right. This is assuming that the facts we know are true, this is corruption in the sense yes. that this guy f financed his lifestyle. And it's not just the jet trips. He bought his mother's Buying house, house, all the and, oh, yeah, and renovated with her in it and paid for the kid's college uh, school and, tuition. And the nephew you know, in politics, was, yeah. like this is the kind of thing, like if you want to pay, pay, there was one politician in New York uh, who it was well known that if you really wanted to get on his good side, play him in poker and lose. Yes. You know, this is just old school Tammany Hall type stuff. And I don't think it's the same thing. For example, some people say, well, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' wife is a headhunter for law firms. People have jobs and, and it's just this is I think a lot of these judges at all levels are are pretty fastidious about this kind of thing. And my understanding right. is a lot of the other federal judges at the lower level are, are really furious about it. I think I think that I think it is a a bleeding wound for their reputation unless they until and unless they do mm -hmm. something about it. So I, I've got one more question for you because we're getting low on time. Sure. Um, so there have been a lot of proposals on the left right now for how do you reform the court and and where do you see those standing right now, especially given how consequential the twenty twenty one twenty two cycle was about expanding the court or term limits or any of those other sort of alternatives that have been proposed out there in the wind. And I, I think this is going to be big going now and big going forward and part of the debate in 2024, part of the debate over voting rights and other democracy issues as well. Um, I, what I support uh, and what my organization actually works toward are term limits. Um, an 18-year term for Supreme Court justices, again, the, the premise being nobody should have that much power for too long. It sort of rests on the insight that George Washington had when he limited himself, you know, to two terms. Um, right. The, uh, you can do it by an amendment, constitutional amendment, for sure. I think you can also do it by a statute. And interestingly, it's very popular across the political spectrum. Um, oh, I was sure. a, I was a member of the Presidential Commission on term limits. Um, 
excuse me, not on term limits. That there wasn't one on the that it was on the <laughs> Supreme Court. It was sort of designed to make sure stuff didn't happen. And you know, these commissions they're designed often to make to deflect action. And we were actually ordered at the outset not to reach conclusions. And and we didn't. <laughs> We've a government agency that works as intended. But it was really interesting because we heard from dozens of public witnesses from left and right. Mm-hmm. And some supported court expansion, others opposed it, some supported uh, an ethics code, others opposed it. Over and over and over again, they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. There really is a nascent, if unrecognized, national consensus on this. Now, if it ever starts moving, does it get polarized instantly? There's obviously a lot of strategic questions on that. Um, In the book, I I raise a lot of questions about court expansion. it's certainly legal. The con- Congress has the power to, to set the size of the Supreme Court. It has expanded it and shrunk it before. Um, right. But, but uh, you know, it, w- it would very possibly lead to a retaliatory spiral of Republicans adding their judges, Democrats adding oh, yes. theirs. And there's a real risk of unknowingly tripping over a unspoken but pretty deep public concern about, about the courts. You sort of see it in Israel on the streets of Tel Aviv. Absolutely. I don't think Netanyahu was expecting that response. So I caution my, my friends who are ha- having, that. having a little involvement in Israeli politics. I can tell you, he definitely did not expect he that. He did not response. expect that. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, look, if the court continues on its path and hi- hijacks democracy uh, in ways that I fear it still may uh, come back to me then, but like for right, right now, come back to me after the independent state legislature theory case, and I might have a different view. But I, I, I think that there are great risks in 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 court expansion. Whereas you know you can really bring some accountability to the court if presidents each get an appointment every two years as part of the term limits. It doesn't mm-hmm. help one party or another, but it has a lot of the impact you want to have even with court expansion. Right. It changes the complexion of the courts in a way that, that uh, you know, reflects the country changing, too. Because right, right now right. you have guys like Clarence Thomas who are, you know, I guess he's in his early 70s now or late 60s, early 70s. And he's a product of a different, a much different era, a much, much different era. And, and it's, it's, you know, the country is moving in one direction and the court is veering sharply in another. And that creates a crisis going forward. Um, and the country is more diverse. It's it's younger. It's it's got different views, and the court is dug in. And we, you know, if if this idea of originalism, this history and tradition, really is followed through, it it is genuinely, literally saying we're going to govern ourselves today by the social values of property owning white men in 1791 when <laughs> women couldn't vote, when black people were enslaved, and on and on, and that is redoubles the the potential legitimacy crisis that the court has. So I think something's got to give. And the the book tries to tell that story and point point forward. Well, Michael Waldman, thank you so, so very much today for coming on the Enemies List. Folks, the book is The Supermajority by Michael Waldman. You can get it on Amazon and everywhere fine books are sold. It is a it is a really interesting insight and a really interesting moment we're in right now because, you know, the Supreme Court, it shapes our lives in very profound ways. And Michael is a great chronicler of it. Thank you again, Michael. I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
today's rant comes back to our friends in the Republican primary field. Fuck all of y'all. Okay, you are all on the damn list. Oh, the dogs are barking in the background. Y'all are just going to have to ride with me today. Donald Trump has been indicted. We know that Donald Trump has been indicted on 37 counts, 20-some which have involved the Espionage Act. And every goddamn major Republican candidate, from Ron DeSantis to Nikki Haley to Tim Scott to Mike Pence, is out there mealy-mouthed just the biggest bunch of PABs you've ever seen. Oh, it's the deep state going after Donald. It's abuse of power by the... It is not, and you all know it. This is a guy who's guilty as sin. He stinks like like a corpse in in a junkyard. This is absolutely a grotesque defense of the indefensible. Not one of you is qualified to be president of the United States because you can't say the words. You can't say that a man under indictment under the Espionage Act who revealed the most classified military information this country has, put the lives of our intelligence officers around the world at risk with his reckless, horrifying, bullshit behavior. None of you can say, oh, I won't vote for that guy. You'll, you're going to still say, I'm going to vote for the nominee no matter what. Okay, he's going to be the nominee. He's also a criminal. He'll, he's had been indicted. He's going to get more indicted in other cases. And by the end of this, it doesn't reflect on him because we all know what a scumbag he is. It reflects on all of you. I would tell you to get your shit together, but I think you're also morally compromised. You're beyond redemption. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.